We are going to have a Bible study, so let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to finish this epistle that we have been in for the last few months, and uh, what a blessing it has been in 1 Timothy chapter 6, then back in the New Testament. If you do need a Bible, we're going to finish uh, the book here this morning, and then next week we'll move into 2 Timothy. But if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Pastor John will make sure you got a Bible. But it's been a wonderful book that we have been studying over the last few months. And Paul the Apostle, as you recall, that he's in Macedonia. He said with that, when I went to Macedonia, I urge you, Timothy, to stay in Ephesus. And so probably Paul's in the city of Philippi, which is in that region of Macedonia, northern Greece. And the church of Philippi really supported Paul in a lot of ways. So I suspect he's there in Philippi. He, he's writing to Timothy, who was commissioned by the apostle to pastor this church, this large church in Ephesus, a major church of proconsular Asia. And you recall that that we have seen traveling through this letter, this epistle, Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, has been instructing Timothy in church conduct. Timothy, first of all, the first charge is that you are to teach no other doctrine. That is, you are to remain in sound doctrine, be committed to it, deal with those who have brought in strange and weird doctrine that doesn't lead to godliness. It is a theme that we have seen throughout this epistle, and we're going to see it's going to be a theme that Paul's going to end this epistle with. So, Father, we thank you that even as we come right now, that our hearts would be open to, to your word for you to teach us. And Lord, some of these things uh, fly right in the face. I know that much of it, what the world teaches and the philosophy of the world, even what's being brought into the church that is popular. But Lord, that we are to pursue that which pleases you and we're to flee those things that will harm us spiritually. Help us, Lord, to take these things into our hearts and to have them worked out in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul was telling Timothy that, Timothy, you're going to have to deal with those who bring in myths and fables. And, and there are the legalists that have come into the church and what they teach. They don't even understand the implication of what it is that they're saying. We saw that in chapter one. And as we saw that last week, that he's warning him against those who have come into the church that we're saying that godliness is a means of gain. And we are clear from the context in verses 6 through 10, and even as we continue here and finish the epistle, that he is talking about financial gain. And as we discussed last time, just as there were the prosperity teachers in Timothy's day, we have numerous ones in our day that are behind the pulpit that are telling you and me that the priority is to be that we are to pursue material things, worldly things. We're to name it and claim it. That's what godliness is all about is what they are saying. And so Paul is saying no. Don't get caught up into that. Don't get caught up in, in, in worldliness and in, in their deceptive message that has come into the church. And so Paul is instructing Timothy from such, you are to withdraw yourself. That's a command that he gave to him. And if you have food and clothing, then, then you came into this world with nothing. You're going to leave this world with nothing. And you are to be content. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts. So continue in sound doctrine. 
the true gospel. It is to be proclaimed. And it's an important emphasis that we're going to see that Paul's going to close with. And Timothy, uh, this should be taking place in the church when it comes to church order, when it comes to the corporate meeting, uh, meeting of believers, that chapter 2, you're to pray for all men. And you're to pray for those who are in authority and make sure that the men and women know their roles in the church. That's chapter two again. And then chapter three, as we travel through that chapter, here it is what you're to be looking for, the qualifications of leadership of elders and deacons. And then Timothy, when it comes to ministering and providing needs for widows, chapter five, here are some of the guidelines. And so Timothy's receiving instructions on church conduct, how it should be, but also he's exhorting Timothy in his own walk with the Lord. And you recall in chapter 4, he said, Timothy, let's pursue godliness. Let's labor together in that. And that's an exhortation that I want to remind you here, we as a church, hey, Calvary Chapel, let's, let's move forward in godliness. Pursue those things that are pleasing to the Lord. And we're going to learn how it is that we can do that once again. And in chapter four, there is Timothy that is told, here's some present imperatives. This is how you do that. This is how we can labor together in godliness. That first of all, you wage the good warfare. We're going to be reminded of that as we continue in this chapter. You give yourself to doctrine, Timothy. You meditate on these things. Give attention to, to reading, exhortation to doctrine. Don't neglect the gift that has been given to you by the laying hands of the eldership, by the Holy Spirit. And don't neglect that. And take heed to yourself spiritually. And then as we continue in the remainder of the chapter, he's going to say how you pursue godliness is you flee those things that are deceptive and unprofitable. And then you are to pursue, and we're going to see what it is that we are to pursue. So flee the, the material desires and the love of it and priority and mentality of, of pursuing worldly things and you are to live for heaven. And you see, just as it was in Timothy's day, it is so true in our day that there are many things that will take us away from pursuing godliness and truth in the gospel. There's so much deception that can be out there uh, that is trying to infiltrate the church, has come into the church, that takes us away for living for him and living for eternity, and living and serving the Lord, and being a light to others. Not only is it the prosperity teaching, but worldliness that has been presented to the church in so many different ways, trying to get our focus off of Jesus and living for him. So Paul here, given these final exhortations and instructions in this first letter to Timothy, I'm going to back up to, we left off at verse 10, but I want to read in verse 9 and 10, and then it's going to set the scene for uh, the rest of the chapter. But remember that he wrote to Timothy, he says, but those who desire to be rich in verse 9 fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And now verse 11 here, here's the contrast. But you, O man of God, flee these things, and you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And I believe that Timothy was indeed a godly man because Paul calls him that. You're a man of God, Timothy. 
He would say of Timothy, you're a true son of the faith. What a wonderful thing it would be said by Paul the Apostle. Can you imagine Paul coming to you and saying, you're a godly man or you're a godly woman? Uh, what a blessing that would be. In Timothy, you flee these things. What things? Well, we saw last week in, in verses 3 through 5 that, Timothy, you flee those who misuse God's word, those who are proud. Uh, what Paul said, that they end up really knowing nothing, but they're obsessed with disputes and arguments. They have corrupt minds. Uh, as I mentioned, that, that godliness, as he continued forward in verses 6 through 10, uh, is a means of gain, financial gain. That's clear from the text. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And so we as Christians, uh, as men and women of God, we are to flee those things that he was talking about. And then whenever the Bible says that we are to flee something, the Bible then tells us that we are to pursue other things. That is, pursue those things uh, that are of godly virtue, that have eternal value. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God not a man or a woman of the world. And we are to pursue righteousness, doing righteous acts, pursuing a righteous life, that which pleases the Lord in our lives, pursuing godliness, living godlike, pursue faith and, and love. Timothy was already instructed in chapter 4, you remember, to be an example to the believers in faith and love, but also in words and conduct and in purity. And, and pursue here as he reminds them once again, be one that you are pursuing. And it is a message for us as well, that you pursue patience and gentleness. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul would write in the book of Galatians is love, faithfulness, long-suffering, and gentleness. And as we walk in the Spirit, and as we yield to the Spirit, those virtues are going to be worked out in our lives by the Spirit. And now that as we look at this, one thing I want to remind you or, or pass along to you, that word pursue, it means to chase after, to run after. And this morning, we can ask ourselves in the honesty of our hearts, really, what is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you're chasing? What is it that you're running after? that you're working for, that's a priority in your life? Is it material, worldly things? Or is it pursuing godly things? Pursuing the kingdom? Living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Desiring to be a witness for the Lord? That which will benefit you for all eternity? Paul already wrote in chapter 4, verse 8, remember that godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And today as Christians, the priority for us is to pursue godliness and faith and righteousness, love and patience and gentleness. And it may not be valued in the world, and it may not, as you are in the world, benefit you as you're desiring to live for the Lord. There may be a cost in that with relationships or even in the workplace or whatever the case may be. But I'll tell you this, it will benefit you in eternity, in light of eternity. It is valued in God's kingdom. 
And eternity is a whole lot longer than what this life is because this life, James says, is but a vapor in light of eternity. The psalmist writes that our lives are but for a moment. And the things of this world that we are told by the world and even some circles of the church, the prosperity teachers, that you are to prioritize and to name it and claim it and pursue, that it's all going to burn up. And that's why the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel, is so vain. It causes the individual to want to pursue that which is temporary, that which is worldly. I'm going to name this thing. I want riches in my life rather than pursue that which is eternal. It causes the person to focus on this world that Peter writes in his second epistle is going to burn up. Do you realize that? You know that the scripture says that everything in this world is going to burn up. It's going to burn up in a fervent heat is what Peter says in a huge nuclear reaction. It's all going to melt away. The things that we have. The houses, the cars, the boats, whatever it is that we have. It's going to burn up one day. We can't take it with us. Paul said you came into this world with nothing. You can't take anything with you. And that's why it's important. That we are to be ones that keep our eyes on eternity and focus on eternity and storing up our treasures in heaven. Because the prosperity teacher is going to tell you that you are to name it and claim it and pursue those things rather than godliness. And in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you and I as Christians, as we pursue godliness... Not the ways of the world, not the philosophy of the world, not the latest trends of the world. It's not always going to be easy because we belong to another kingdom. And, and, and the things that we pursue fly right in the face of what the world says that we are to pursue. It won't always be easy. And we need to, here at Calvary Chapel, just as Timothy is being told, we need to have a soldier's determination to fight the good fight of faith. Because as we've talked about before in this epistle, that it is a battle out there, isn't it? It is a battleground out there. Now, as I mentioned last week, that in this epistle, Paul really contrasts those who did not flee things, as Timothy was told in verse 11, hey, Timothy, some have strayed, some have departed because their focus is on worldly things. They're greedy. Uh, come, you know, uh, contrast that with those such as Timothy, who's called a godly man, and those who were in the church that were focused on the kingdom. Their priority was pursuing godliness, to persevere, to fight the good fight. Uh, we hear in verses 11 and 12, as we're told to persevere to the end, we are told how we can do that. Paul gives Timothy here, you might jot it down or just kind of highlight it in verses 11 and 12, how we can persevere to the end. First of all, you are, as we've already discussed and read in verse 11, you are to flee. Flee those things that are unprofitable. Second of all, you are to move forward. Uh, you are to pursue righteousness and godliness. Now, righteousness has to do with your character, godliness with your conduct. And then thirdly, you are to fight. So for us to persevere to the end, we are to flee the world, worldliness. We are to move forward and pursue godliness and righteousness. And then we are to fight the three F's. To, to flee, to go forward, and, and to fight the good fight of the Spirit.
And that, that word describes uh, a soldier or an athlete given their best effort to win the battle or the prize. And oftentimes, Paul would use the analogy of a Christian as one who is a soldier for Jesus Christ, or he would use the analogy of running a race. Paul would write in chapter 1 of Timothy, as I've already mentioned to you, that he was commanded, I give you a charge, Timothy, that you wage the good warfare. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he told the Corinthians that you are to run in a race And don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And you run in such a way that you may obtain it. Paul knew that heaven was real. He knew that crowns and rewards are real, as we will all stand at the beam of reward seat of Jesus Christ. That's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Romans chapter 14. And then Paul, as he was uh, addressing these Ephesian elders before he wrote this letter, In Acts chapter 20, uh, he was talking to them in this pastor's conference of Acts chapter 20. He's saying, I'm making my way to Jerusalem, and trials and tribulations and chains await me. The Holy Spirit has testified that of me, what's going to happen when I get there. And then Paul would say something very amazing. He said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the scripture. It's one of the most challenging verses for me because I want to have that heart. I want to have that mindset. That Lord, in this fight, in fighting the good fight of the Spirit, in the world coming against me, in the things that will come down on me and cause difficulty, I don't want to count my life dear to myself. I I don't want those things to move me. But I want to finish my race with joy in the ministry that you've given to me, that I've received from you. And as next week we're going to move into 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy are the last words that we have of Paul the Apostle in the New Testament. It's a powerful, powerful book. And at the end of the epistle, he says, Timothy... Come to me quickly, for my departure is at hand. And I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. Don't you want to say at the end of your life, that I fought the good fight, that I, I finished my race, that I've kept the faith. I think all of us want to say that. And the word fight, you know, it, it, the, the good fight, is the word we get from our English, which means to agonize. In other words, you are given your best in this spiritual warfare and battle that we are in. You have a soldier's determination because it is a good fight. Please remember that when things get tough and people come against you and you feel all alone, it is a good fight. It's a good fight. You know the story, 1 Samuel 17. We all know the story of David and Goliath, right? And David had just been anointed as the new king. He's a little shepherd boy. He's too young to be in the armies of Israel. His father says to him, David, I want you to take some food to your brothers, your older brothers, that are there on the front lines, that are in the Valley of Allah. 
And on one side of the valley was the armies of Israel. The other side were the Philistines. David, take some food to them. Bring word back to me how the battle's going. But as he went, there on one side was the armies of Israel and the Philistines on the other side. And in the valley of Elah, there was this giant named Goliath, a champion of Gath, over nine feet tall. And you know how he stomped up and down the valley and he's issuing this challenge that, that anyone come out and fight me. Who would dare come out and fight the champion Goliath? And they all shook and they were exceedingly afraid, the scripture says, the armies of Israel. Even Saul, who was the king, head and shoulders above everyone else. And as this young shepherd boy, David, comes up the valley and he hears Goliath issuing that challenge that he says to his brothers, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistines that he should defile the armies of the living God? And his brothers were angry at him. So why are you here, David? You know, why are you here? You're just causing trouble. And, and David said, you know, don't we have a cause here? He said, don't we have a cause? I'll fight them. So I want to say this, Calvary Chapel, don't we have a cause? And even when we have people, it may be family members. It may be friends. It may be those that we work alongside of and those that we live by that they say, why do you take this Jesus thing so serious? You know, why do you go to church? You know, why do you raise your kids in this way? Uh, why do you to take Bible study so serious? And, and they will come against us. They will make fun of us. They'll, they'll, they'll criticize us. But here's the thing to remember. Don't we have a cause? Don't we have a cause, Calvary Chapel? We do. Because there are people out there that are dying eternally because they don't have Jesus Christ. They don't know the truth. They're in bondage to sin and darkness and all kinds of weirdness. There are those who don't have the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. And we are to fight the good fight of the Spirit and pursue godliness. And we are to be ones that are a testimony of the gospel in the words that we speak and how we live our lives. Don't we have a cause? Because there are eternal consequences. And we want to be used of the Lord and keep our minds on heaven and stand firm on the righteousness of God's word, the truth of God's word, and the gospel message. Don't we have a cause? Fight the good fight. Don't give in to the world. But we can do that because our commanding officer is Jesus Christ, who Paul will talk about in the following verses. You see, we fight not for victory, as I said. We fight from victory. He's given us victory. We have a message to proclaim. It is a good fight. And then in verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. And Jesus, of course, would stand before Pontius Pilate. We know the gospel accounts of that. He would testify the sovereignty of God. And in John's narrative, Pilate would say to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or to release you? And what was Jesus' response? Well, we know in John chapter 19, verse 11, that Jesus said to Pilate, you have no power at all against me unless it's been given to you from above. And the thing for us to remember in this good fight that we are in, 
as we pursue godliness and righteousness, we flee those things that are not of God. And when we get weary, and we do, or we get discouraged, or we get upset, or we find ourselves alone, remember that the Lord is the one that is in control. And again, Jesus has won the war for us. And Jesus conquered sin and death. He went to that cross dying for our sins. And we can lay hold of eternal life because the victory our commander has brought to you and to me in going to the cross. And because of Jesus' death on the cross dying for our sins, the work is done and the price has been paid. So you persevere and you fight the good fight until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he will come, he will establish his kingdom. And then righteousness, as Isaiah says, will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Hey, keep looking to heaven, to God's kingdom. Continue with that good confession that Jesus is your Lord and Savior because the king is coming back. And he will appear in verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Paul and the early church, listen, it's clear in the New Testament, they lived in the expectancy of the Lord's return. Timothy, this commandment I'm given to you without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. But here in verse 15, Paul realizes that the Lord will come in his own time. We don't know the day or the hour. As Christians today, I believe that the Lord can come for his church at any time. I believe that he can come in what's called the rapture of the church, it can happen at any moment. We don't know the day or the hour because as I look at scripture, I know that we are in the last days. And as I see the rumblings of the signs that are around us, the labor pains, that we know that we're in the last days. And Jesus says, I come when you're least expected. I come at a time that you do not know. So the commandment is given to us that we're to be watching, we're to be waiting, we're to be looking for the master's return, he says. It's not a suggestion, but a commandment. But I also know this, that Jesus said, you don't know the day or the hour. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, you are to occupy till I come. So he will come in his own time. And in the meantime, I want to keep fighting the good fight till he comes or he takes me home. If this body wears out and to be absent from the body is then to be present with the Lord. And Paul ends this section with the inspiring doxology to Jesus who alone has all power and strength, who is the ruler uh, of the universe. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is holy. You see, you can talk to people and they say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe his sayings. Jesus was a great humanitarian or a great spiritual leader. Or some kind of religious guru. Oh, he's much more. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. God in human flesh that came to this world. He is eternal without beginning or end. He's all glorious and all glory and honor goes to him. 
And then Paul begins to give some final words to Timothy that he gives some instructions to those who are rich, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, and storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So again, we need to keep the proper perspective of what has been told to us, what God's word has been declaring to us. That Paul in this chapter was addressing those who desired to be rich, who had a love of money that would be the root of all kinds of evil. He would write in verse 9 once again that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and foolish and harmful lust. In verse 10, they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Paul was warning against those who were teaching that godliness is a means of, of gain, financial gain. And anyone who has that kind of mindset, they can be poor and have a desire to be rich, pursue the riches of the world. He says it brings all kinds of harm and problems to their spiritual lives. So the scripture, once again, to clarify, does not say that being rich is a sin. The scripture does not say that you can't be a Christian if you're rich. We discussed last week that there are those who love the Lord, who are used of the Lord in a mighty way, that were wealthy. Abraham in Genesis, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. They were ones that belong to the Lord, that live for the Lord. But there is a problem with the love of riches. And with Ephesus being a prosperous city, there were those in the church, Ephesus was a banking center for proconsular Asia, that were considered wealthy. And Paul gives some final instructions to them. He says, if you're rich in this present age, first of all, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant about it. Remember that every good gift comes from above. The Lord, it's by his wonderful grace that he has blessed you. And the reason that you're not to be haughty is because you may be rich in the present age. But listen, the priority for all of us is that we're to be rich in the age to come. And that's the emphasis that Paul has given here. You remember Jesus in chapter 12 of Luke? He's talking to the multitudes, and all of a sudden somebody calls out and says, tell my brother to divide up the inheritance. And Jesus responded by saying, who made me a judge over you, arbitrator? And then he turned to the multitude, and he gave a warning. He said, beware of covetousness. Beware of covetousness that one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. You see, as he gave that warning, covetousness, uh, wanting what somebody else has, wanting more, you know, possessions, power, position, money, popularity, whatever. And that word beware that Jesus used means to constantly, continually be on guard against this. Because once we get saved, especially in our culture, you know, we can still covet. It, It doesn't just voluntarily, automatically leave the human heart. So covetousness needs to be displaced like other carnal tendency in our lives. So coveting, wanting what somebody else has, having a thirst and a hunger for more, uh, leading to being greedy for more, not being content. And that's what Paul has been writing about. And covetousness deals more with just possessions 
or money, as I've said. Exodus chapter 20, the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments, what? Thou should not covet thy neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, you know, his donkeys. You shall not covet those things. So there's a lot of things that we can covet. Position, their popularity. Even in ministry, we have to be careful. I wish I had their building. I wish I had their popularity. I wish I had, you know, uh, their fame. Whatever the case may be, we need to be careful. So again, the Bible doesn't say being rich is a sin. Or we can't leave an inheritance with our children. Matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Nothing wrong with doing that. It's a good man that does that. We want to leave something for our family. But here's the thing. The priority is what? To leave a godly inheritance more than anything. And then Paul writes in the Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, to be careful because covetousness is likened to idolatry. You can be poor and you can covet. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 27. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. So we must constantly, especially in the day in which we're in, in the messages that are given today, be guarding against being a person who covets in our consumer-oriented culture. You know, the commercials. You are not going to have a good Christmas unless you have this thing, unless you buy this, unless you have, you know, this new car in your parking lot, you know, driveway or whatever the case may be. Listen, we have Jesus Christ We have the greatest gift of all, eternal life. So Jesus said, beware of covetousness. And then he told the the parable of the rich fool after he says that one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things that he possesses. And in that parable, the rich fool, you can read in Luke chapter 12, that the rich fool who was blessed and had abundance, matter of fact, in the parable that you read the word I some 11 times, I believe, In other words, the rich fool had an eye problem. He said, I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and I will store up my crops, and I will store up my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, and take your ease, and eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards heaven. You see, in that parable, the rich man, the one that Jesus is talking about, seemed to, in the world's eye, be doing very, very well. But God said to him, "This you fool, you've stored up all this wealth, and you have all this, and you've arrogantly and very, you know, proudly have said, I'll take care of my ease for many years. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. But tonight your soul is going to be required of you. And the tragedy, listen, of the parable of the rich fool is not that he had great wealth and possessions. The tragedy was he was not rich towards God. And that's what Jesus said. He was not a good steward of what God had given to him and blessed him with. And he was arrogant in saying, I'll live for many years, and I'll take my ease, and I'll live for myself. And Paul here gives a warning. Those who are wealthy of that mentality, listen, don't be haughty, but be rich in good works. Be ready to give, willing to share, 
Don't be greedy. Be a good steward of what God has blessed you with. Be thankful for what God has blessed you with. Be rich towards heaven. And a reason, another reason why you don't want to be haughty is because riches, you know, you put your trust in it and it's so uncertain. You can have it one day and you can lose it the next. You can have it and somebody's going to try to get it from you. You can lose those riches. Uh, and it was Job that was wealthy. And, of course, we know that, that he lost it all. He was one that trusted God. He was blameless. He was upright. And Job, when he went through all that loss, he said something very amazing. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can't help but think about what we studied in, in Revelation chapter 18 not long ago on Wednesday night when it talks about commercial Babylon and how it was destroyed in a very short time. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 18, <coughs> For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. And so there was great mourning by those who had put their trust in riches of the world. And God doesn't want us to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. Because there's uncertainty in the riches of the world. I remember that it was years ago um, that um, when the church first started, I was taking the youth group few kids that we had and I do things with them I took them to Boyd Lake to you know do some swimming and play volleyball and things like that we were at Boyd Lake and there was this uh, young family and they had a couple of ski jets and as we were there anybody that went near the ski jets he would run over and he would say get away from my ski jets you might scratch it or anybody that brought in a ski jet next to it he'd go over there and start yelling at them and he went ballistic and I kept thinking what is your deal? And it made such an impression on me that I remember even after all these years, it's like, why don't you just go home? You're not even enjoying yourself. You're so worried about your ski jet being, you know, scratched or something. You see, that's the thing about when possessions begin to possess our hearts and we begin to put trust in, in the uncertainty of the riches of the world or possessions that we have, is that there's a danger in that. And it begins to... to Put us in bondage where you don't even enjoy it. And we can't enjoy those things. And remember that Paul wrote here at the end of verse 17, God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, we can enjoy if we have the attitude of Lord, you know, thank you for giving me this. Of course, we want to be good stewards of it. But to have the proper attitude, if it gets scratched or whatever, it breaks, I'm not going to, you know, be all uptight about it and bummed out in life about it. But Lord, you've given me all things to enjoy, and I don't want those possessions to possess my heart and put me in bondage. And as Christians, we're not to merely just consume material possessions selfishly, but to do good, we're being told, and store up our treasure in heaven. And as you do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be blessed, and you will live that life abundantly that Jesus has promised us. But we're being warned against an unhealthy attachment to material things of this world. And it is worthless when compared with a life that is living for Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. So that's what Paul is passing along to Timothy. 
and encourage the brethren in this. And then as we close, O Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Oh, Timothy, grace be with you. Amen. And then he puts his pen down. And that's the book of 1 Timothy. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. The gospel message, the truth of God's word. Don't be pulled away to foolish things, to that which isn't true. And it's an exhortation to us. Listen, let's guard what has been entrusted to us. The truth of God's word, amen? The gospel message. Don't let the world take it away from you. The philosophy of the world. Hang on in pursuing godliness. So, Father, we do thank you for this epistle that we've gone over and learned. We thank you that we're reminded of those things that are to be a priority and importance in our lives. What it is that we are to pursue. Love, gentleness, patience, godliness and righteousness, living for you. And so, Lord, I pray that that truly would be our mindset, to to fight the good fight of the Spirit, to run our race with joy that you've given to us, and, Lord, to finish our race well, to not be sidetracked, distracted, be in bondage to the philosophy of the world or the things of the world. But, Lord, we thank you for what you've given to us. Help us to do good, to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us, to be thankful And Lord, live a life pleasing to you. To keep eternity's perspective and values, Lord. Because that's the life that is a life of joy and true thankfulness and peace. It is a life that pleases you. And to keep eternity's perspective because heaven awaits. Your son is coming back. And Lord, we want to live for eternity because you put eternity into our hearts. I do pray for those, maybe you're here and you're thinking, how can I lay hold of eternal life? How can I be assured of it? You can be assured of it as you surrender your life to Jesus. The Bible says repent. That means quit going the direction you're going. Because the world can't save you, you can't save yourself. The philosophy of the world of being a good person, listen, none of us are good enough as good as you try to be. We have all sinned, the Bible says. And that's why Jesus came, the Son of God, and he went to a cross and died for your sins. He made atonement for your sin. He's the propitiation for your sin, the satisfaction, the requirements of a righteous God from sinful humanity is that his Son went to the cross and shed his blood. And all of your sins were placed upon him. And then as he made atonement for your sins, he cried out, it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. He was put into a tomb and he rose again. He validated that he's the son of God that conquered sin and death. No one else did that for you. So salvation comes by believing in the gospel message. Here's the good news. That as you come to him and call upon the name of the Lord and surrender your life to him and ask for forgiveness, that he promises that you will be forgiven, have the hope of eternal life, and have right relationship with the Father. You come as you are, but you come surrendered 
and in sincerity of faith of saying, I need to surrender my life to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. You can do that right now. You can pray that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I have sinned. I believe you died on the cross for me. You were put into a grave. You rose again. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. That this good news gospel is now my gospel. And I thank you for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God for your forgiveness and the hope of eternal life and help me to live for you, to learn of you, to be yoked to you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, there's a prayer team up front here in just a minute as we close. That You tell them the decision you made. We want to pray for you and bless you. But for all of us here, particularly at this season where so much pressure can be put on us about things that our desire in our lives, first and foremost, is to pursue you, Lord. That personal relationship with you, to know you, to walk with you to please you with our lives, godliness and righteousness. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.